Everyone has a story, but not everyone is a storyteller. Welcome, you're listening to Otherwise, Wisdom from the Other, a variety podcast dedicated to empowering diverse communities living in Treaty 6 territory by sharing stories of their lived experiences. Hello, my name is Morenike Olaoshebiko. Today's episode is a continuation of a discussion with our member of Legislative Assembly, David Shepard, Janetta Jameson from Black Women United YAG, and Dunia Nur, community developer, community organizer, radical member of the Sumhali community in Edmonton, as well as Emmanuel Ona, a youth advocate with the Africa Center. We hope you enjoy. And I think what's going on in those times of suffering, when you're under threat, self-preservation kicks in. A collective self-preservation kicks in. So that's a totally different motivation than, you know, trying to, again, work on something positive and progressive and good times, you know. And I think, too, in terms of, you know, the newer groups who have come, and to me, y'all are new. Everybody here is new <coughs> at the table. Y'all new. So, you know, I'll, I'll cop to this. There wasn't much in terms of infrastructure, you know, progressive community organizations, even responsive and relevant community organizations <coughs> left uh, created by my people. And then, you know, by the Caribbeans who joined us years later, you know, we had, so let's, let's just take, let's just think back, what we have. So we had some churches. We had some nightclubs. They'd open and close. The after-out joints. They'd open and close. <laughs> yeah, if there's anyone older here from uh, the Caribbean, we'd say 7-Eleven, and they'd know what I mean. <laughs> we, we had a few little restaurants. And a few little cultural associations, you know, run by interesting characters. <laughs> now that was me, I was being politically correct and nice. <laughs> so really, when, when the rest of y'all came, what did you come to? It's not like you came to a blueprint. It's not like you came to, you know, standards and and things that were already working that you could then either model after or get with the program and join in. So when you look at that, even though there have technically been African people here for about what, what are we going on, what, 130 years probably, because before the province was actually official, we were here. Every group is starting at zero. Every group is starting from the bottom up, from a blank slate. That bothers me, to tell you the truth. That really bothers me. That should not be, but that is the history here. And that's Janetta Jameson, a descendant of the African Americans who immigrated to Western Canada about five generations ago, starting in the late 1800s. Janetta's people established their own settlements. They had five all-black communities in rural Alberta and Saskatchewan. Janetta is also one of the founding members of Black Women United, YEG. I think part of the initial problem was lack of trust. And, you know, establishing trust helps establish a community. So we had people from Janetta's community who tried to establish or put a structure in place. Now, the people, some of the people who were in that party of building were untrustworthy people. And therefore, the whole uh, endeavor collapsed. Now, we have people here in the current times 
who crown themselves community leaders, gatekeepers. Uh, gate, gatekeepers. They're not picked by the community, and whatever endeavor it is that they want to uh, uh, embark on is not supported. And let's say, for example, they are they have a following. The lack of trust, the lack of uh, connection to the group that they supposedly represent, is what eventually crashes any effort. So even when uh, when these people, gatekeepers, uh, so-called community leaders, are met by government officials or um, you know any other entity that that has an interest in creating or establishing a structure within the community, they end up going their own route. They end up doing things that personally benefit them, so benefit them, and without thinking about the community. So we have a community that has trusted one person, or maybe not even trusted this person, but this person has answered the door on behalf of the community. Now, when they when they don't uh, deliver, what does that do? It disempowers the community. The community is back, they, exactly, they go back to zero. They say, well, we tried and, uh, you know, it didn't work. And the next time around, someone honest, someone hardworking, someone who genuinely has the interest of the community comes around, they're gonna say you are the the fox, or exactly. That was Emmanuel Ona works with high risk youth. Uh, does a lot of community building work with youth, all around youth advocate, member of the Nigerian community and greater Black community in Edmonton. So, so he uh, said all that stuff that was really important about gatekeepers. Yeah. And if I can speak to that. That's one of the real challenges, and I grapple with this within politics, and I think it's true within community. The problem is when you want, when you need to get a big movement, when you need to get stuff done quickly, then you gravitate towards gatekeepers and leaders and charismatic personalities. Because that's what gets the job done on that level. Because you need to inspire people. If you need to move a big group of people and you need to move them quickly, you need somebody who can sell it. And the problem is we can get too dependent on that kind of thing because that is the easy fix as opposed to, again, building the slower momentum, the groundwork, the more decentralized models that allow for more systems of accountability. I mean, look at Obama, right? We hung way too much on the man, or the, or the folks in the U.S. did, and so did the Democrats, right? They didn't use that time to build any extra capacity. They didn't use that time to get themselves ready and pull their socks up. They let everything hang on that man's door. And once he was gone, they had nothing. They had not built anything to replace him. And we do that too often in community. And speaking as someone who, I yeah, I put on that hat. I do that. Because, I mean, that's part of what I think my job is to do, is to provide that inspiration and that vision. But at the same time, I have to remember that I have to be doing the other work on the ground and trying to raise up some other leaders, get some other people ready. It's about building capacity in the community because once I step away, I want to make sure that other people are able to keep doing what they're doing, that I'm not just building my ego and building my thing. That was our member of Legislative Assembly, David Shepard. And for, at least I can speak for myself, my experience in terms of gatekeepers have just been a story of horror. Because for us, gatekeepers have not been, I'm just going to be blunt here, they were not charismatic, they were not attentive to their community's needs, nor were they 
expert. They didn't have any <coughs> skills or expertise, nor were they trustworthy individuals. They literally got it because they decided to put on a suit, call themselves leaders, speak on behalf of the community, and half of the things that they said completely misrepresented the community and made, especially for me, I'm speaking like I'm speaking from a Somali perspective, like I'm speaking as an individual who is from the Somali community. My experience with gatekeepers have been horror. For example, the Somali community is the biggest community, like black African community in Edmonton, Alberta, also when you look at Toronto and Ottawa. And when I reflect on what's going wrong, I really think it's our leaders. And for the longest time, from a naive perspective, I always used to blame the leaders. But now I'm taking the responsibility and accountability to make a meaningful difference and say, well, what am I doing to fix that? What I found in that process is that you become the boxing bag for everybody. Everybody. And then what does that lead to? Young females that are depressed. It leads to disempowerment. It leads to just feeling naturally, just slowly trying to gravitate away from your community. Because for some reason, excellence is not welcomed. Accountability is not respected. Transparency is not even in our terminology of language. Someone can steal $1.5 million and think it's okay and leave, and then no one speaks about it. And yet we complain. So that sense of shared responsibility, gatekeepers for me, when you think about it from a mediation perspective, of you know meeting everyone you know their needs and talking to the government and to the community and building capacity that has not been for the Somali community and that was Dunia Nur community developer, community organizer, radical Somali citizen, and member of the larger black community in Edmonton. Gatekeepers have been the curse of our community. So I, I wonder then, hearing what you're saying, and I, I recognize that, yeah, because I see a lot of you. You know, young leaders and other people who step up. I see it happen in the political scene too. Right? People step up. They try to. They put their best foot forward, and they can get run over by people who are more about ambition. Right? They get torn down. They get shredded, and they walk away and never come back. Lose a lot of good advocates. A lot of good people. Though. So the question. What I'm wondering then is maybe these are the communities we need to build first. The communities of people who have passion, who want to step up, who are working to try to build capacity within their communities, but aren't necessarily getting that support there. So then we build those communities of those leaders, those individuals, those advocates across communities, give them the chance to come together, support each other, be able to talk through, look at building resources. I mean, that's part of what, you know, some of the government programs we've been putting together, Status of Women, some of these other things, that's what they're targeted at. You know, helping build capacity and support for, you know, for women in particular, but also for other young leaders and that sort of thing to help exactly deal with some of the stuff, the toxicity you're talking about. That's wonderful from an external uh, support, perhaps a solution. Internally, though, so you always hear me say, and this is one of the things that I teach in Black Women United, the problems are within Mm -hmm. and without. Don't take this polarized view, you know, everything is on the outside coming to get us. Oh, no, 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 no. The wolf is inside as well. Okay. So one of the problematic mentalities that we that we carry and this is across all of our ethnicities is this conditioning that sees us desiring the man with the plan the charismatic male the big man of the village 
brother important, right? (laughs) And we are waiting for him to come. It's like he has like almost like a a savior type persona. And we just waiting on him, you know? And this goes back like way, 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 way back. You know, this is not nothing new. Like this literally goes back so, so many generations. And you may have perhaps that whole charismatic and you know my people we come from a very strong um you know oratory tradition for example we're very strong speakers but it has to be in a man it can't be in a woman and just like you said use that put that woman and use that woman as a punching bag or a whooping girl that's going back to slavery time that's a slave term that's literally a girl (coughs) that they would tie to a post and then just whip for the sole purpose of venting frustration okay our own people will do that but let him be the man with the plan. He's selling snake oil all day, every day. Okay, he ain't going no good for anyone. He's trying to sleep with everybody he can. He's just trying to take all the money he can. He's trying to do his thing. But just let him come across in this way that we have been conditioned, that leadership is going to arrive and present itself, and he will have a following. We need to change how we define leadership with the accountability that we expect of leadership. And as David said, what are the processes that you're going to put in place to make sure that they are beholden to the people, not the other way around? Flip this shit on its ear. And uh, just to add to what David and uh, Janetta just talked about, I think it comes from not having the power. I think a lot of people who are passionate, who are honest, who really want to do good work for their community to help the community build, they don't have the support. They don't have the power. They don't have that momentum, I should say. Why? Because anybody who's honest, who wants to do good work, like like Dunia said, excellence is not uh, welcome. So when we have a situation like that, and then you have an external source, which is the system, the government, looking for people who are charismatic to do work quickly, then you have two things pounding on the community from both sides. You have the people who want to do the work, and you have the people who bring resources to that community looking for you know the people who are bringing down those good people so what i'm going to suggest then is the government should start taking its time because those people who are being ganged upon by the community can't do anything about that they will just end up being beaten down end up you know going into their shells and you know withering away but the government is still there so the government needs to now start taking its time if you're gonna put, if you're gonna do something for the community, don't don't try to do it quickly. Do it so that it is long lasting. And how do you do it so it's long lasting? You're making sure that you're dotting all your eyes and you're crossing all your T's and you're making sure that the people who you're putting this responsibility upon are the right people. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. We want the community to be established. We want the community to be strong. We want things to be built upon. We want a strong community in in summary. But it has to be done correctly and it should be done slow. Nothing built fast will last. And maybe that's just uh, one of the biggest sources of our community problem. I just wanted to add, this is a prime example of why young people should be really motivated and supported to take leadership roles from a civic perspective. So whether they're MPs, MLAs, go for premier, I don't care, do something. The reason why... Dunia for president. Oh, nah. <laughs> But honestly, I think the reason why is because we have a different way of understanding, a different way of being that is still not being heard respected, right? Personally, for me, I think that 
it's it's very hurtful. But I will say that the Somali community, we're we're still a brand new community, and we've done a lot of successful things. For example, if you look at our businesses, the way that we are, you know, we're very supportive of one another. We're there for each other. If anyone needs anything, you know, we'll come through. Um, one thing I could always, it's funny because Somali people always crack this joke that no Somali person can be homeless, right? Mm. But when you look at the homeless shelters right now, it's full of Somali people who have addiction issues, who have mental health issues. Mm. And when you look at, well, why are you homeless? It's because their leaders misused the funds to support those individuals. So for me, I'm really moving in a different direction. I no longer have high expectations to anyone that claims to be leadership. Mm. I feel that leadership should be appointed, just mm. like how respect and trust needs to be earned, and it mm. takes a process, and relationships take time. Mm. I also am now understanding that I am part of a greater community. I am part of the Canadian society. I have just like how I have rights, I also have responsibilities. So now what I'm doing is I'm trying to educate myself civically. And I'm also trying to get young people to educate themselves. I'm also trying to basically like go for the positive side and get out of the midst of this depression era of who did what. Or, or What's going to happen is you don't want to turn into a toxic... If you don't leave a toxic energy, it will unfortunately make you that character so at times you do have to leave so for me I decided that I'm right now pursuing my master's in social policy I'm part of this brand new group that's uh, African Canadian civic engagement they look straight into literature I'm really looking you know forward to a lot of things that Black Women United have going on for sisters healing and protection and advancement I am looking at what Maronica is doing with HIV Edmonton I'm very appreciative to you know David Shepard taking in these conversations as a leader in our community I'm paying attention to the fact that you know Ahmed Hussein is our you know basically he's our MP he's our Minister of Immigration just a couple years ago he was actually my mentor and we had different perspectives and we spoke for four, five, seven hours so right now when I look at even Ilhan Umar who ended up becoming the Senate in, in you know the states where being black is very it's not the best you know you're not at advantage there so I stopped depending on my leader I stopped having expectations when I say my leader, I mean our leaders, those that claim to be leaders. I'm no, I'm, I'm not in that circle anymore. Mm, I am no. more learning about opportunities. I want to get you know young people scholarships. Mm. I want to connect young females when they're fleeing violence or they feel unsafe. I'll connect them to people like Janetta, people like Habiba. You know when young people want to engage in civic participation, I'll connect them to people like Emmanuel, to David Shepard, to you know even you know Sohi have worked great with our community. So that's my way of slowly coming back and rejuvenating my energy because I will say that a lot of the leaders in our community just completely broke my spirit. That's awesome. You know, because what I hear you saying is you are taking time now to build your capacity. You're not trying to pull your community up by its bootstraps. You're learning. You're seeing what are the systems that are out there? What are the resources that are available? How does this world around me work? And once you understand that, now how can I use what's there? Some of the momentum that's already existed moving around me to start accomplishing the things I want to for my community and for, for the people with me. And I think that's one of the things that we really need to be doing more of sort of amongst the, the African and Caribbean communities in Edmonton. It's important, absolutely, that we preserve culture. Jeanette is right. You know, it's, it's a sad thing when people just choose to just completely assimilate and lose everything that made them unique and just give in. That's not it. The question is, though, we do have to understand the world we live in, and we have to understand the systems that are operating around us, and then go, okay, what are the aspects of that that I can make work for me? 
that can work for our communities to accomplish the things we want to get done. And then you're, you're saving energy because you're not trying to build all the momentum from scratch. You're tagging on to things that are already moving, that are already going forward. There will be things that we have to build from scratch because they will run into situations where there's no process in place. There's no system there or there are profound barriers that got to be broken down. But we can save a lot of energy in, in many respects. And that's, again, where it's valuable then to start coming together and having these conversations and getting to know each other because then we identify, oh, you're struggling. We're also struggling with that. Okay, well, let's sit down and work on that together because there is power in numbers. But we have to understand what each other is about, what each other needs, figure out what our commonalities are, and then we've got something to build unity on. And I'd just like to say that, Daniel, <coughs> what you describe your experience is not unique to you. It's not just that, you know, Dunya was bad. She deserved what happened to her. They came for her because she was wrong. Mm-mm. Nope. Unfortunately, when you get oppressed peoples, traumatized people, anytime that you're smart, you're um, intelligent, you're studied, you're well-spoken, you represent that excellence that you mentioned. Unfortunately, what you went through, I'm sad to say, was a rite of passage. That's gross. So basically, if we, we are going to just rain fire down on your head, and if you survive us, then maybe, you know, we'll give you a little you know, breathing space. Maybe, maybe you are right. Like, let's start and let, let's, let that sink in. So when we have our community-minded, upstanding, eager young people, we are going to incinerate them as a rite of passage to see what I can say historically from my people when we would be doing that. It was something we learned while enslaved. So we will break that child so the white man don't have to. I'm hard pressed to find a good reason, positive reason, for these rites of passage. And it's having these types of conversations that, again, being the troublemaker, as my own people around your age, they branded me. Okay, but look at me now. <laughs> I turned that around, you see. You know, I, I, I want to have these kind of conversations because if it gets you thinking as to why we're accepting and by means of accepting, continuing toxic, harmful practices that only we can choose to change. And it literally is just a decision away. Okay, what will it cost me as somebody senior to you to edify you instead of tearing you down? To get to know you, to invest in you, to perhaps position you? What will I gain from doing that, you know, and this is all with the understanding you're a young woman of good character and will not make me regret that decision. What will it cost me? Will that be to my benefit or will that be to my loss? Clearly to my benefit. And by extension, to everyone who is, is like me, to everyone in my image, okay? We're not thinking this through when we have these knee-jerk reactions, these emotion-based reactions to people in the community, to younger people in the community, you know? And I, 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 again, like, like I said, I definitely went through that. That was my rite of passage as well, you know? Absolutely. 
you know, it, it pains me, but it's truthful to say that some of the cruelest things ever done to me were done by the older black women. And I remember being around 20 and promising myself, you know, you are never going to be that woman, you know, that just like rains fire down on the head. There's another way to lead. There's another way to bring up those behind us, you know, and, and thereby, I mean, like, look what you create, you know, look at in terms like, you know, somebody at this table mentioned, you know, in terms of, of legacy, are you thinking about legacy or are you eating your young? That's a little bit cannibalistic. Uh oh, oppressed people don't think in terms of legacy, but oppressors do. David, you had said, learn how to do things also in the environment that you're in. But that takes some time to be still, observe, and think. When you're just running amok, showing up places and running your mouth, you're not in that state of crafting a strategy as to how I'm going to survive and hopefully thrive in this ecosystem. And I want to encourage those of us who, if this resonates, if you're hearing me and this resonates with you, picture yourself doing that observing and thinking and then strategizing from a good place the positive outcome that I want in all of this because really uh, from what life has taught me you're either going to be part of the solution or part of the problem and you know what history has now passed in terms of the black community in Alberta history is not kind to those who are part of the problem thank you I have one last question so we've talked a lot and very often as we're talking, we keep using this word black, right? We say it's good to be aware that we're black and what that means. And then you talked about the shackles of mind and generational trauma. And what I find interesting is I'm now at an age where I have a few friends that have children. And sometimes, I guess one story, one of, their, one of her children, one of her child basically says, oh, I'm brown, I'm not black. And so she then has to teach her child what it means to be black. Because even though your skin is brown, what you are called is black, right? And then I have other friends where the way they deal with this, they actually have children that actually just straight up say, mommy, I'm not African, you know, I'm not, I'm black, I'm not African. And their parents allow this to happen and this is accepted. This is, you know, yeah, it's true. They're born here, they're Canadian. They're not, they're not African, right? And so I guess the last question I want to ask is, how do you identify? Do you identify as African? Do you identify as Caribbean? Do you identify as black? If you identify as African, what do you think when people call you black? Do you think, do you find it offensive? I actually now have a group of people that actually find it offensive if they're called black versus if they're called African versus if they're calling Canadian, called, called Canadian. There are people who want to be called Afro-Canadian but don't necessarily want to be called black. They say black does not define me, even if, even if you're being oppressed the same way a black person is being oppressed. So I'm curious about your thoughts about this because this also goes into some of the th what you actually mentioned, David, earlier about how the, the way you grew up was not necessarily an environment in which you grew up thinking, I am black, right? So I'm really curious about what you think about that, about the issue of identity. Well, if I guess if you were to ask me how do I identify myself, I'd probably, yeah, I'd say I identify as Canadian. I mean, it's 
was born here, I was raised here. I was not raised with with a particular culture. My my father uh, eschewed most of his Trinidadian culture when he converted to Christianity at the age of sixteen. So I wasn't raised with it at all. So I mean, I'm I was born and raised Canadian, but you know, it's these last three and a half years you know, have been a, a real opportunity for me to learn. And it started before that. It started around, you know, uh, around 2014, you know, with the uh, with the murder of Michael Brown. That's when I really started paying attention to sort of uh, the black voices coming out of the U.S. And I just did a lot of reading. Spent a lot of time just reading voices on Twitter, journalists, activists, advocates, and just listening to their experience. And I began to recognize, okay, these are folks who've had a very different experience of life than what I've had. And tried to sort of just educate and listen. And over the last three and a half years or so, again, the opportunities I've had to work with all the different communities here in Edmonton, learn the histories of the settler community and that actual black history here in Alberta. That, for me, has been a process of reinforming my own identity. You know, I can't claim those experiences. They aren't mine. But knowing those stories, knowing those histories, and knowing that I do share on some level a bond, a connection, and having the opportunity now to turn that, try to turn that into something positive and use the opportunity I have now to try to give something back to those communities, to learn from them and work with them, that, for me, has been sort of... I guess trying to reclaim some of what I didn't get to have. So I think it's incredibly important, you know, story in history especially. You know, like I, uh, before my dad passed away this year, I had the opportunity to sit down with him in a digital recorder, just like we're doing right now, and get him to tell me his life story. Growing up in Trinidad, everything he experienced, everything he went through, how he came here, what his experience was like. And that was revolutionary for me in understanding who I am in the history of my family and a lot of what shaped who I am, you know, and understanding my father. And I think every community needs to keep that. You don't want to lose that. And Jeanette was talking about communities that have kind of abandoned that and sort of just embraced a fully sort of North American identity, and I think that's an incredible loss. I love the chance I have to go to all these cultural events with all these different communities, and I study up on their history. I try to learn some of their language, a few of their proverbs. It's, it's rich stuff. Because I think story and narrative is what makes our world and informs who we are. So I think it's that part of identity is incredibly important. <laughs> I have a shirt that says "Black Woman" on it. <laughs> no mistaking, you're black, Junetta. You are black. My shirt answers the question. <laughs> so I think sometimes there's also a confusion around the terms, and I ugh, sometimes I just cringe when I see these conversations and hear them taking place. You know, so Canadian, if all of us, I, I think, are Canadian at this table, right? That's our citizenship, it's our nationality. Ethnically, though, that's more referring to your cultural, racial, sometimes even some religion sneaks in there, <laughs> people of origin. So, ethnically, I'm African American. My citizenship, my nationality, is Canadian. My race, if we're just going by the <coughs> common terms, although, I mean, we know that the human race is not divided into all these divisions, right, is black. However, black on this continent is also a culture, and it's also an ethnicity, and we fought really, really hard to establish 
that terminology, right? So again, and that is something that is, you know, very rooted in the African-American experience because, you know, when you just look at what we had to go through in terms of defining ourselves as a new tribe, all these different Africans from so many different tribes stuck in this mess, how are we going to define our way out of it? Especially when you look at how the white supremacist system was defining us. <laughs> we had our work cut out for us. We went from niggers to negroes to coloreds. And then we said, screw you, we're taking the reins on this. We're black, but black is proud and black is beautiful. Say aloud, I'm black and I'm proud. Okay, so it's not a derogative or a pejorative for us. We fought for that. And it's kind of like, the, the understanding, the unspoken understanding that if anyone at this table were to call themselves black is coming from a place that it's beautiful and proud. Mm. And that's what I feel. Mm. And it's not coming from a place where, but now that means I'm not evil. Now that means I'm not Nigerian. Now that means, no, 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 no. It's just in addition to mm. now that you're living here in this. Mm. It's something that you can say is in addition to. That's my perspective on it. I second it. <laughs> second the perspective. I definitely identify as black. I'm Nigerian, Igbo, not quite Canadian yet, but someday. But I'm from the continent of Africa, and yes, I am black. Because I go through uh, life not, you know, not denying what I look because there are a lot of people who would rather, you know, scrape that, scrape their skin off because it's a burden to carry a black skin. I don't see it as a burden. It is beauty. It is what I'm made of. It is who I am. So I do not deny it. Anybody who wants to take it away from me, better, uh, you know, uh, you'll get a good fight for sure. And yeah, no, I am black. Yeah. Having listened to the conversation that camera, I'd say... I'm, I'm learning to identify myself also as being black. Uh, I didn't feel I had the right to claim that before. Right? I didn't feel I was cool enough that I fit, right? I didn't feel like I, I had, the, had the markers to, or the experience or the history to be able to claim that I was black. But I'm getting more comfortable with it now. I feel, yeah, it's, it takes, it's partly self-acceptance. It's partly the opportunity I'm having now to, to talk with people and be in the, in the community, to become part of the community and listen to the voices and the experience and, and start to internalize some of that. So I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with it now. And I can understand, David, go easy on yourself because I'm going to tell you something. A brother in his power is the coolest thing on the planet, man. You know, like, who can beat that? That's intimidating. I get it. <laughs> that is a definition of cool, baby. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I just want to add, I really think I would love to have, like, especially when Janetta was speaking, I want to have this conversation, now I'm thinking, at a at a bigger circle because I remember just like yeah we have to because I remember just a couple of months someone got really upset the fact that I was identifying myself as black they were African they were East African and they were like you're not black you're not decultured but unfortunately they never got to hear Janetta so this is why you know sharing circles and talking and conversations even within our community 
and the diversity of understanding different perspectives is important because what I heard Janetta say, it was full of culture and diversity and, and resistance and a whole different way of surviving and thriving. So I, I feel like, oh my goodness, we now that you say this, there's an idea that it's funny because I know Emmanuel and I talked about this like I think last year that we wanted to create a sharing circle ceremony of exchange between those of African Canadian you know the settlement community and you know African and basically getting your rite of passage but passage in a good way not not, the not being torture. boxed down <laughs> yeah because you know um, at the age of 17 like I was literally reading about Alex Haley and Malcolm X and Roots and so for me, my whole identity and way of being, and it's interesting when I say this near the Somali community, actually came from people like Harry and Tubman. Mm-hmm. So I don't know much about the Somali history, but I know more about the African-American history. And I feel like even when I gravitate towards books of liberation and my critical thinking and how I interact in the world comes from black feminism, like bell hooks. Right, so for me, it's it's a very maybe I'm the definition of a diaspora. I'm just lost. <laughs> no. So I'm still trying to figure who I am, like David Shepherd is. But I feel like I, I I know I'm black. I know I'm African. I know I'm a female. But I think our our community definitely needs to have because I know people that okay. When I was in Toronto, if you call Jamaican people African, ooh, they're getting it's offended. Fighting. Like how dare you call me African? For African, if you call them black, it's like Whoa. did you just say black? And if you mistaken them for Jamaican, then you're done for so <laughs> I'm like hey we're all black at the end of the day so I don't know thank you so much for that and and the it's children too thing. the children too so people that are born here that have don't weren't born in an African country but they were born to African parents right. they shouldn't say that they don't want to be called African no, either really. and their parents should not allow that they shouldn't be saying I'm not African and they shouldn't say <laughs> like that Junetta is like I'm going to tell these parents about themselves <laughs> no, they, need, they need to come to my house man they yeah. again that's that what did I say earlier that's that slippery slope to annihilation mm. they are sliding down they have a, a toboggan in there they go phew, <laughs> right to the bottom <laughs> That they should. Uh, right that right. said, too, though, that's an opportunity for conversation. Because right. if they're saying that, there's a reason. So you sit down, you talk to them. So okay, you're you're not African. Well, what does it mean to you to be African? Why is it that you feel that you're not that? It's you know, where is it coming negative. from? There's exactly. So yeah. So you need to talk through it, and so don't, And I mean, that's a lot of what what Daniel was just saying. There, I think there's a, potentially a lot of great conversation that could be had in this, in taking some of this stuff apart. And again, that's where the be, that's how you build community. Right, is yeah. Yeah, like like Jeanetta started or said, what do you mean by community? You got to define your terms because if uh, if we don't have a common language, that's then you know we don't have anything to build on. I, I just want to say for, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that a wide range of people get to hear this conversation. You might have different things going on in your homes with your kids. Perhaps this has t- touched a nerve in certain ways. I'm going to assure you of something. Culture is a resilient factor in children. Mm. It is not to their detriment. It is not to their uh, displacement quite the opposite and psychologists have studied this and found it to be true so there it's official (laughs) experts say I wish I could put Junera's face in a podcast so much then my earrings can be shown off too yeah sister got some nice earrings from, from Kenya she's busting it and you're all missing out 
It is a resilient factor. It actually helps them adapt, fit in, relate, have confidence, try new experiences, and be open to diverse messages and trains of thoughts and friends and just the whole social experience. Okay? It's a protective factor. You don't, nobody else wants our kids here running off and getting in trouble, do we? Culture is a protective factor. I'm telling you, let it go to your peril. You can't let it go. I understand there's some things that maybe we don't want to take quite everything, and that's our prerogative too, right? Pick out the best, mine the gold, and have that just be an everyday you know, normative experience in your household. But do not strip it away. For God's sake, when you just look at the inferiority complex that Canadians in general have, everybody, you know, it's like this inferior complex to uh, like the Americans, you know? They know who they are, but then you, I read these articles in McLean's world. What does it mean to be Canadian? What does it mean? You know, they don't even know. It's like an ongoing debate and they're trying to figure it out. So then what are you giving your kids next to nothing? Again, it's citizenship. That's your nationality. Your ethnicity is something else. Your racial designation, that's something else too. And I'm sure that needs to evolve as well. But no, 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 no. In terms of your culture, if you want your child to be able to walk through the minefield that as a little, you know, dark child of color, they are inevitably going to experience, they better have that culture backing them up. Or else there's a good chance they're not going to make it. And this is especially true of your sons. I don't think I can say anything more. Other final thoughts? Just snapping your fingers. That's poetry. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced with the support of Minister Faust. We are thankful to the African Safari Restaurant for a great meal and a lovely meeting space for our dialogue. We are also thankful to our speakers, Emily David Shepard, Janetta Jameson, Dunia Nur, and Emmanuel Ona. For additional content and future episodes, visit us at otherwiseshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at otherwise underscore show for updates, workshops, and opportunities. Thank you to our partners, the Ribbon Rouge Foundation, Confident Camel, Breath in Poetry, and Generation Shift. Our theme music was created by Kaz Mega. Our show is generously supported by the Edmonton Heritage Council. Otherwise, is an affiliated member of the Alberta Podcast Network. You can find fellow affiliates like the Well Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation at albertapodcastnetwork.com, along with a bunch of other Alberta-made podcasts. Remember to rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. Ratings are a surefire way to get us heard. Keep in mind, how we share stories is as important as who shares them.